I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I know some of you probably considered just skipping church this morning because, of course, the subject of spiritual gifts is just so boring, right? And uh, there's no excitement there. Oh, of course, it's one of the, the most exciting and sensationalized uh, subjects in the Word of God. <laughs> and we began last week dealing with it and, and trying to provide some introductory thoughts to this passage. And Lord willing, we'll finish this passage this morning. And we trust that God will teach us and give us some spiritual knowledge as well as some spiritual giftings to be able to apply His Word to our hearts and lives for the blessing and benefit of His church Let me begin by reading the text. We began last week in verse 4, and we got down through verse 11, or we got down through verse 7, and uh, Lord willing, we'll get all the way through verse 11 this morning. But let me begin reading in verse 4, and I'll read the entirety of our text. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 4, the Bible says, These are the words of God. Now there are, diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Well, we've already begun this section of 1 Corinthians 12 by looking at some general principles pertaining to spiritual gifts. The true teaching of this text is the antidote to the abundance of false teaching that surrounds the subject of spiritual gifts and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. As we've already seen, there are so many who exalt the gifts above the giver and they sensationalize the gifts that are of a more public and extraordinary character. Uh, But there are also those who seem to have no room in their practice and in their theology for spiritual gifts at all, and they minimize and downplay the role of the Spirit in the Christian life. Well, we don't want to commit either of these two errors. We don't want to use gifts to bolster the fame of those who exercise them, but we also don't want to despise spiritual gifts and neglect their importance. And we would never want to tell anyone, contrary to what the Bible says, don't pursue them. No, the Bible says, pursue spiritual gifts. But not for our own fleshly pleasure or or prosperity, but for the glory and honor of the Lord Jesus Christ and the service of His church. Remember that the goal of spiritual gifts is one and the same as the goal of the Holy Spirit who gave them. Jesus tells us about the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. He will not come to glorify Himself. He comes to glorify me. The Spirit did not come into this world to draw attention to Himself, but to redirect our attention to the person and work of Christ. That is the same goal of spiritual gifts. They are to to exalt and to magnify and and to to, uh, enlarge our gaze upon Christ. And today we come to one of the few places in Scripture that contains a list of spiritual gifts. Uh, Much like last week, there are some preliminary matters that I must share with you before we jump into an exposition of these verses. And much of what I will say, again, will be introductory, but I trust that it will help 
And I trust that if I do a good job giving you some introductory material, then when we get to the exposition of our verses, they'll, they'll kind of explain themselves in many ways. Let me begin by reminding you of the general principles pertaining to spiritual gifts that we've already considered. Number one, spiritual gifts are a manifestation of the Spirit. That's what spiritual gifts are. It says that in verse 7. But a manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man. Uh, The Spirit is seen at work in the church as He empowers believers to serve the body in accordance with their gifts. Uh, Don't look for the Spirit in some visible display of dust or smoke descending upon the church. That's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is seen as He ministers through believers to bless and to encourage and to convict and to exhort and to comfort and to challenge and ultimately drawing them closer to Christ. That's where we see the evidence and a manifestation of the Holy Spirit at work in the church. Secondly, let me remind you that spiritual gifts are possessed by all believers in the New Covenant. All believers in the New Covenant. There's a story of a man who took a boat ride from England to America, and he barely had enough money to buy his ticket, and so he he bought his ticket, but he packed crackers and sardines for the trip. Had a bag of crackers and sardines. And... Uh, Every day he would walk by the dining hall and he would look in and he would see the people eating and he would smell the food and then he would hang his head and he'd go back to his room and he would eat crackers and sardines. And one day he was passing by the dining hall and one of the workers on the ship said, Sir, aren't you going to come in and dine with us? And he said, No, ma'am, I only had money for the ticket. I could not afford food, so I brought crackers and sardines. And the worker on the ship says to the man, Well, sir, don't you understand? Your tickets were all inclusive. Child of God, your ticket to heaven is all inclusive. God did not save you so that you could go through your life feasting on spiritual crackers and sardines. As my friend David Morris likes to say, when someone comes to him and says, Brother David, have you received the second blessing? He says, I don't know what you're talking about. Because my Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1 that God has already given me every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When God saved you, He gave you His Holy Spirit to indwell you, to fill you, to lead you, to guide you, And with the Spirit comes the gifts of the Spirit. At your conversion, the Holy Spirit took up residence inside your heart. And I love, I love that the way that the King James phrases it in 2 Timothy 3, when it says that the Word of God, and we know that that's the chief tool of the Spirit, but it makes us thoroughly furnished. Thoroughly furnished. Not thoroughly furnished, but thoroughly furnished. Meaning that. Uh, That when the Holy Spirit indwells a believer, what He does, because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, what He does is He furnishes you. The same thing you would do if you were to buy an empty home. You buy an empty home, you go in, and there's nothing. There's not a piece of furniture. Before you live there, first thing you do is you put in some furniture. That's what the Holy Spirit does in you. He puts in some spiritual furniture, some spiritual gifts to make you fit for His abode. And all of us, do not have the same gifts, just like all of our homes do not look the same. All of us do not have the same measure and degree in our giftings. Uh, when I, we first got married, we didn't have a single piece of new furniture. We had, we had some cheap hand-me-down furniture. Now, I'm not suggesting that any uh, gifts of the Spirit are cheap or hand-me-down, but what I am saying is that when you're first converted, you, you realize you have spiritual gifts but you shouldn't expect for your gifts to be as cultivated and as developed as someone who's been walking with the Lord for decades. All of us don't have the same measure and degree in our gifting. We have to cultivate these gifts. 
But make no mistake about it, all of us have spiritual gifts. As we serve the Lord in His church, we're able to recognize these gifts, the peculiar gifts that God has given us. If I can speak very candidly to you, if you are someone, perhaps you're sitting here this morning, and you are a believer in Christ, but you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, or even if you have them, I would ask you this. In what ways are you serving the church? In what ways are you seeking to be a blessing to other believers? That's why God gave you your spiritual gifts. And it could be, may I say it is, if you are a Christian who doesn't know of your giftings, or doesn't believe you have giftings, it could be that you're just quenching those gifts by not exercising them in service to others, which is the purpose of those spiritual gifts. That is how the Lord shows us and allows us to recognize what our gifts are. It's not rocket science. We serve in the avenues that are before us, and as we give ourselves to service, and as we pursue the blessing of others, we realize hey, I actually like doing this. I find joy in doing this. I have a knack for doing this. And God reveals to us our spiritual gifts. On that same token, let me caution you. Do not use a perceived lack of giftedness as an excuse to disobey New Testament commands. All of us are commanded to pray. You, you can't say, well, I just don't have a special gift of prayerfulness. You might not have a special gift of prayerfulness. You might not be someone who spends prolonged seasons in fervent, effectual prayer, but you're still commanded to pray. Um, you might not be someone who is uh, just naturally given the gift of encouragement. That doesn't give you a license to come to church and be a jerk, okay? Okay. <laughs> Don't use a perceived lack of giftedness as an excuse to obey New Testament commands. As you serve, you will discover the ways in which God has uniquely gifted you as you find joy in employing your gifts for the good of the body. Thirdly, spiritual gifts are diverse in their distribution and degree, but they are united in their purpose of bringing together the body of Christ to accomplish the commission given by the Lord of the church. This is really an indispensable truth about spiritual gifts. The Spirit did not give us gifts so that we could parade ourselves before one another and have a contest to determine the most spiritually gifted among us. It's not the purpose of spiritual gifts. We were given these gifts to serve as members of His body. You don't have to go around telling everyone what your spiritual gift is. It will become very evident. In fact, oftentimes, others will notice your spiritual gift before you do. And one of the ways you'll find out is someone will come up to you and they will say, you know, brother, I've just noticed that you seem to be uniquely gifted in this area or in that area. And I would say to you, if you, if you hear that about yourself from others in a particular way, don't, don't, don't use false humility to discount that. That could be God revealing to you Maybe I have a spiritual gift in this area. Some gifts are more obvious than others in achieving this goal of fulfilling the commission of the church, right? For example, we can all see how the gift of teaching and preaching points to Christ. But that's what all the gifts do. When a member of the church exercises the gift of serving, are we not reminded of our Lord who came not to be ministered unto, but to minister to others. What, what a beautiful picture of Christ when someone in the body sacrifices of their time or of their money or of their energy, not for their own, nothing's in it for them, but, but, but they want to be a blessing to others. Is that not a beautiful picture of what our Lord has done for us? Or what about when a member of the body exercises a gift of extraordinary intercession and encouragement and prayer? Are we not reminded of our Lord who ever lives to make intercession for us? You see, any study of the spiritual gifts 
must be framed with these principles in mind so that we keep them in their context as, as equippings of the Holy Spirit to serve the body. The other glaring detail that must be noticed about our text in 1 Corinthians 12 is what this passage does not contain. And what this passage does not contain is the thing that makes it very difficult for expositors. What this passage does not contain is a thorough explanation of what any of these gifts are. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he just lists them there, and it's as if Paul says, here's the list, preacher, have at it. (laughs) I'm not going to give you any explanation. I'm not going to give you any extra details. Here they are, go preach it. He lists nine spiritual gifts in verses 8 through 10. But he makes no attempt to define any of them. (laughs) And you say, and you're going to get up and you're going to define them. (laughs) Well, yes, uh, but before we do that, uh, let me make a few observations uh, about this glaring omission. What does this omission tell us? What should we take note of by this omission? A list of gifts with no definitions. Firstly, this reveals to us what God wants us to emphasize as it concerns spiritual gifts. That is, He does not want us getting bogged down in the intricate details of what these gifts are and aren't. Sometimes we have more joy in arguing about the definitions of the gifts and in fighting each other because I think this gift has ceased and you think it hasn't and we're going to now go to battle than we do in seeking to exercise spiritual gifts in the church. God doesn't want us to just be arguing about spiritual gifts. He wants us to be pursuing the exercise of spiritual gifts. He wants us to see them in light of their broader context as endowments of the Spirit for the good of the body. And if you want to see what your spiritual gifts are, uh, I would suggest to you that uh, you're going to learn your particular giftings through practical application more so than through theoretical learning as you seek to serve. Secondly, this omission, no definitions, reminds us of the occasion for this epistle in general and this chapter in particular. 1 Corinthians is a prime example of God working all things together for our good. Paul is only writing on the subject of spiritual gifts because of the abuses and excesses in the Corinthian church. Had they not had all of the problems they had, we wouldn't have the scriptures that we have. The same is true for the Lord's Supper. We lament the abuses of the Lord's Supper, but on the other hand we say, well, thank God in His providence that... Corinth had all of these problems so that God would inspire the Spirit to write for Paul to write this book that we now use in our instruction. God used the problems of the church as an occasion to record teaching to instruct other churches throughout the remainder of this present age. And so perhaps Paul's not giving a gift because, or he's not giving a definition of the gifts because. A definition of the gifts was not what the church needed. Remember in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul described the Corinthian church as a church that came behind in no gift. What does that mean? That means there was an abundance of spiritual gifts in the church. And here's a hermeneutical principle. Anytime you're reading something in the Bible and something that's confusing or obscure to us is mentioned with no no, no definition, The assumption there is that the audience of the original readership understood exactly what he meant. Uh, Think about some of the confusing things in Revelation. You say, John, you're talking about this beast, and you're talking about the number 666. What in the world are you talking about, John? Well, he says, let the reader understand. John assumed that his readers would understand what he meant. And so uh, we we should assume that when Paul lists these gifts, the church at Corinth understood what these gifts were. Because they had an abundance of gifts. What they needed was not an exhaustive definition and a theological lesson. 
as much as they needed a reminder of why God gave the gifts and a reminder of the humility that they were supposed to have as they exercised the gifts. And thirdly, the fact that the Bible does not provide a clear and definitive explanation of these gifts should caution us against making them major points of contention. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? There are points of theology that are often associated with the spiritual gifts that are absolute essentials to orthodoxy. For example, I am not saying that since there's not an explicit definition of prophecy and healing found in this text, that we should or can condone the obviously abysmal teachings of so-called fake healers and prosperity preachers. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying, well, Paul doesn't give a definition of prophecy, therefore, any definition goes. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is this. We need to realize that sound, orthodox men have had honest disagreements about what these gifts are and how they function in the church. If you read five commentaries on 1 Corinthians 12, which I've read more than that, in the past few weeks, you're likely to get five different explanations of what some of these gifts are. I do believe that faithful exposition requires that we attempt to explain the identity of these gifts. And I'm going to do my best momentarily to tell you what these gifts are according to the Scriptures. But if Calvin and Henry and John Gill and... Gordon Fee and all of these different men don't have any general consensus on the definition of some of these gifts, I believe it would be more than presumptuous for me to stand before you and to say, I'm going to give you a certain definite definition of all of these gifts. So, instead of trying to do that, let me give you some guiding principles that will aid you in the exposition of these verses. When you come to this list of gifts, really when you come to any portion of Scripture like this, you need to employ the hermeneutical principle of analogia fidei, which is the analogy of faith. What is the analogy of faith? It is the hermeneutical principle that teaches us to interpret the less clear portions of Scripture in light of the doctrines that we know to be true based on the clear teaching of Scripture. Can I give you an example? We know with certainty that the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is a true biblical doctrine. Those who are in Christ will always be in Christ. He will keep you in the faith. You will not lose your salvation. We know that to be true. Therefore, if we come across one verse of Scripture that on the surface seems to teach that it might be possible for a believer to lose their salvation, we can know that that is not, in fact, what it means because of the clear teachings of other portions of Scripture. Okay, So, we need to interpret this list of spiritual gifts in light of foundational doctrines and truths that we know to be the teaching of the Bible. You say, well... What are some of those doctrines that we need to have in mind as we approach this text? Well, let me give you two of them. Number one, number one, we know that the Spirit is still ministering in the church. Therefore, there are still spiritual gifts in the church. We know that. So, the total cessation of all spiritual gifts has to be ruled out. We know that, okay? Number two, we know that the record of divine revelation is complete and the canon of Scripture is closed. Therefore, if any spiritual gift, by definition, by definition, necessarily communicates divine revelation, then that is a gift that cannot be operating in the church today. So keep those two foundational principles in mind as we... Look through this list. Oftentimes, when the subject of spiritual gifts comes up, the question will be asked, are you a cessationist 
or are you a continuationist? Having studied this text, I really don't like that question very much, and I'll tell you why. I know I'm treading in, in dangerous ground, but I'll tell you why. And you, you know about me that I'm not one to be afraid or shy uh, of theological labels and terminology, but let me tell you why I think that this particular paradigm is a bit unhealthy. The answer to the question, continuationist, cessationist, depends on what you're asking about. The cessation of what? The continuation of what? If you're asking me if I believe in the continuation of spiritual gifts, the answer is, of course I do. Of course I believe in the continuation of spiritual gifts. But if you're asking me, and this is what's most of the time asked, about spiritual gifts that communicate new revelation from God, then the clear teaching of Scripture requires me to be a cessationist. Now, you might think I'm being a bit pedantic here, or squabbling over terms, but I believe this is an important distinction to make. As one brother said, words mean stuff. And so we need to be clear about the words we use before we use them. Let me give you another word that we need to be clear about. We need to carefully and accurately define. And that is the word charismatic. We often hear that word thrown around. And it's oftentimes used either as a pejorative term to define people we don't like, or it's used as a term to label ourselves as more spiritual than other people. Right? Here's the problem with that word. The word charismatic comes from the Greek word charisma, which simply means something that is graciously given. And Paul uses the same word, charisma, to identify all spiritual gifts. You see the problem? If you were to ask me, are you charismatic? And all I had was a Greek New Testament, and I was oblivious to the modern usage of the term, I would say, well, of course I'm charismatic. Because I believe that spiritual gifts still operate in the church today. We have the gifts of the Spirit here. Christ Fellowship is a charismatic church. But what's the problem with that? Well, not only do words mean stuff, but the stuff they mean changes over time. The term charismatic, as it is used today, refers to a belief in the continuation of spiritual gifts that convey new revelation. That's how it's often used today. And by that definition, we must not be charismatic. (laughs) Because of the clear teaching of Scripture that the complete record of divine revelation has already been given and delivered to you in the 66 books of your Bible. These semantic distinctions reveal a fundamental teaching that pertains to spiritual gifts. This really is the heart and the linchpin of this whole discussion. I think if you get this right, you won't get into many problems in your interpretation and defining the specific gifts themselves. We must understand that there are essentially two kinds of gifts. There are apostolic gifts that were foundational to the establishment of the New Testament church and ceased with the death of the apostles. And... There are ongoing gifts that will continue to operate in the church until the end of the age. And the difficulty in definition in nearly every case is identifying whether or not a particular gift is one of those apostolic foundational gifts or one of those ongoing continuing gifts. And because Scripture rarely provides an objective definition, don't you wish that every time a gift was mentioned there was a little footnote that just told you what it was, right? But Scripture doesn't give us that. Therefore, we must use the broader context of the New Testament, the analogy of faith, to define the gifts as best as we can. You say, Pastor, why are, what's your point with all of this? Why, why all of the introductory information? What I want you to see is that oftentimes, theology is just not as simple as it seems. And as it pertains to spiritual gifts, there is an important rule to draw from all of this that I will follow and will commend to you, and that is this. 
So long as we have solidarity on the clear teaching of Scripture that divine revelation is complete, that there is no new revelation today, and that the full record of divine revelation is contained in the Bible and only the Bible, I'm not going to fight you over how you define a particular gift. I'm just not going to do it. You might use language that I wouldn't. You might define a gift with language that I wouldn't feel comfortable using. You might talk about the ministry of the Spirit and use some terms that I would say, I just don't know if that's the best way to describe it. But so long as we agree on the the nature of Scripture and Revelation, I believe we should have unity, and I believe we should get along. Well, believe it or not, that was all introductory. Uh, So now let's pick up in verse 8. And let me remind you of our outline. We saw last week, as it pertained to gifts in verses 4 through 6, we saw the principle, unity in diversity. And then in verse 7, we saw that there is purpose in design. And now finally, we come to this infamous list of gifts, and we see that there is specificity in delineation and sovereignty in dispensation. So, specificity in delineation, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10. Notice about this list that with one exception, all these gifts are listed in pairs. We have the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. Then we have faith. Then we have healing and working of miracles. Then we have prophecy and discerning of spirits. And then we have tongues and the interpretation of tongues. They're given in in pairs. It should also be noted that it seems as if Paul gives these lists in the order of importance. The list that begins in verse 28 would corroborate with such an order. Uh, Notice in verse uh, 28, Paul begins and he says, God hath set some in the church first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, after that, miracles, gifts of healings, helps, governments. And what is last in both lists? It's the gift of tongues. I think he does this also because of the the unique problems of the Corinthian church. The church at Corinth was exalting the gift of tongues over all other gifts. And in both lists, gifts associated with public proclamation and the teaching of the word come first. Then miraculous gifts such as healing are in the middle and tongues are mentioned last. Tongues are mentioned last. It cannot be denied that the gift of tongues is without a doubt the most controversial gift in these lists, and it's also the one that is most glamorized by the modern charismatic movement. The same was true with the Corinthian church. They had exalted this gift out of proportion with the other gifts of the Spirit. So it's significant that Paul would put it at the end of the list. Let's now deal with these gifts in the order in which they are listed and I will do my best with the knowledge of, that Scripture affords to answer the question, what are these gifts and are they for today? I want to go as far as the Bible goes and no further. So, words of wisdom and the word of knowledge. Or the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. Commentators on 1 Corinthians struggle to agree on the distinction between these two gifts. The inclusion of the phrase, the word of, notice that's unique to these two gifts, suggests that both of these gifts have to do with public communication in the assembly of the church. We should rightly understand these gifts as teaching gifts or as gifts that are exercised in the public proclamation of the word in the church. But the similarities and differences of these gifts are difficult to identify. Uh, Some have suggested that wisdom may be the apostolic gift of receiving divine revelation, whereas the knowledge, the word of knowledge, is the gift to teach others that revelation that God has already given. Understand the distinction? Uh, Others have suggested that the gift of wisdom refers to the ability to proclaim the gospel, that the message of salvation. Uh, Paul, earlier in 1 Corinthians 1, refers to the gospel as the wisdom of God. You'll remember, he says that we preach the wisdom of God, right? Christ crucified. Whereas the gift of knowledge refers to the ability to teach the full counsel of God and other areas of theology. 
certainly we could understand and you, you could probably think of practical examples of some preachers that seem to be just uniquely gifted in preaching the gospel. Uh, they, they were able and they were used of God to proclaim the message of salvation and, and, and many people were converted under their ministries. But when it came to systematic doctrinal teaching, maybe they weren't as gifted. Or maybe you're thinking of another preacher that is, is wonderful at teaching systematic doctrine, um, but is not as gifted as others in the preaching of the gospel. That's one interpretation of the difference between these two gifts. It's also been suggested that the word of wisdom is the gift to practically apply the truth of God to specific circumstances, whereas the gift of knowledge is the ability to understand the doctrines that God has given in His Word. That's another interpretation. Lastly, some have suggested that there is no real distinction at all between these two gifts, uh, but Paul is simply describing the same gift with two terms. That is, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, same gift, two different terms. Well, I hope you see that defining these gifts is not an easy task. Uh, and, and by the way, the interpretations I just gave you came from the premier commentators throughout church history. They, they don't agree on what these gifts mean. So, we must look to Scripture to give us general directives to help us in understanding these gifts. Remember the analogy of faith, the two foundational doctrines that are guiding us. If one or both of these gifts refers to the apostolic gift of receiving revelation apart from Scripture, then that would lead us to believe that this gift has ceased. And Paul does talk about uh, gifts of, of receiving revelation that we know have ceased. On the other hand, brothers and sisters, it seems apparent from portions of Scripture such as 1 Corinthians 12, verses 28 and 29, Romans 12, verses 6 through 8, Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 12, and the qualification of pastors that is given in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, that there is an ongoing and continuing gift in the church today known as the gift of teaching. And I, I think it's accurate for us to understand that within that gift of teaching, there are subsidiary gifts that God uniquely gives to different teachers. And it's very plausible and reasonable to assume that the words of wisdom and the words of knowledge may have some import into the teaching ministry of the church today. And if they do, then not only may we believe in their continuance, we must believe in their continuance in order to have qualified pastors in the church. Next in this list is the gift of faith. Well, the gift of faith cannot be a reference merely to saving faith. Why? Because saving faith is imparted to us by the Spirit, but it's not a spiritual gift for the service in the church. It's given to all Christians. When we talk about spiritual gifts, we're talking about specific things that are not given to all Christians, but only to some as the Spirit grants them. So this is not a reference to saving faith. Uh, it must be a reference to something else. And I, I think that the most probable definition of this gift is that it is an extraordinary, great measure of faith that is not possessed by all Christians at all times. It is the kind of faith that believes God and has such a strong trust in God amidst overwhelming and insurmountable discouragement. It is a special endowment of grace to walk by faith and not by sight. It is the kind of faith to believe God for big and mighty things. It is the kind of faith that makes missionaries and martyrs. Think of some of the examples from church history. What was it that led William Carey, the great Baptist missionary, to go to India? He was a cobbler. He was a shoemaker living in a rural town in central England. He was not a linguist. He was not theologically educated. He had no financial support. But yet he believed God that he was going to be used to bring the gospel to India. And with very little support, he left England and he went to India and he experienced great discouragements, 
for seven years, not a single convert. But he persevered and he kept preaching and he kept laboring. And he was used of God to plant churches, to establish Bible colleges. He taught himself several native languages and he translated portions of scripture into many, many different languages. There's so many dialects in India. Carrie was trying to learn them all. <laughs> and what, what is Carrie's most famous quote? Attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. It's a great quote, by the way. Put that on a t-shirt. You say, what was it that, that led Carrie to do that? Perhaps he had the gift of faith. You think of George Mueller. The story of George Mueller, they're running an orphanage on nothing but faith. He, he never asked for money. He, he did not send out a letter. He did not go on deputation. He trusted the promises of Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And as he took all his needs to God in prayer, he trusted that God would meet them. There's stories of, in the life of George Mueller. Of, it would be evening time and someone would say, Mr. Mueller, we don't have enough food to feed the children breakfast in the morning. And George Mueller would go and he would pray and he'd wake up in the morning and there'd be 30 pounds of oatmeal sitting out in the front door. I mean, that was just his, the reality of his life. That's not normal. That's, that's not something that every Christian experiences. Could it be that God gave George Mueller an exceptional gift of faith? You read his diaries. I mean, the man just believed God. Financial troubles didn't bother him. Lack of resources didn't bother him. He had faith. He just knew God was going to supply it. You think of a missionary like Jim Elliot, who at only 28 years of age went to a remote village in Ecuador to share the gospel with an indigenous tribe only to be martyred a few days after his arrival. He knew how dangerous it was to go there. And yet he went. And you, you could say, well, he failed because... because uh, he died and, and his companions died and the gospel you know, didn't go to that tribe through them in that trip. Yes, but think about it. For the last 60, 70 years, how many books have been written and, and lectures given on the life and ministry of Jim Elliot? How many people and young laborers and missionaries has Jim Elliot inspired? How many women have been influenced by Elizabeth Elliot? What would compel a man to leave the comforts of America and to go to some indigenous tribe to share the gospel, was it not the gift of faith to believe? God's going to bless this. And could it be, brothers and sisters, that one of the reasons why we don't see power in our pulpits today, why we don't see God move in revival, is because we're not laboring and preaching and ministering with a gift of faith. You read the... the Diaries of some of the men that God used in Great Awakenings. I mean, those men went and preached meetings expecting God to do something great. You read the, the, the life of James A. Stewart. who was a man used even in the 1900s recently. And, and there was a period of his ministry that spanned a few decades where the power of God was so mightily resting upon his ministry. He would go and he would preach and, and God would save sinners and, and, and build churches and do all of these wonderful things and he expected God to do that. Later on in his life, it seemed as if the power of God just was not resting upon him like it used to, not for any sin or apostasy on his part, but just God uses whom he wills for however long he wills. And, and when he would go and preach meetings, and sinners weren't converted, it would crush him. He, he, he thought that maybe he had just lost his salvation. He was so discouraged and depressed. Yet I think if you were to survey all the pastors in America today, you would find that most of them go into their pulpits not actually believing that God's going to do much of anything. We don't preach expecting, really expecting God to save sinners. May God give us a gift of faith to believe Him 
to work among us. We continue on in this list and we find that Paul talks about the gifts of healing and miracles. The gift of healing is easier to to define because the definition of it is in the Word, right? Now, I want you to see, though, that, that when Paul talks about this gift... The gift, is, the gift is the gift of healings. It is not necessarily the gift of healers. It's the gift of healing by the same Spirit. But yet it is a gift that was exercised by people. Why am I making this distinction? Well, because there are some people who claim to be healers, perpetual healers. That is never how the gift of healings was given in the New Testament. Those who had this gift were able to perform miraculous and spontaneous healings. But we find in the New Testament that it was only the apostles and their close associates that had this gift. And we don't find in the New Testament any instruction for us to seek or pray for this gift in particular. It was not a constant gift in the ministry of the apostles. It was not a gift that could be exercised at will, right? Paul had this gift at times, right? He performed healings. He resurrected from the dead. But yet Paul was unable to heal himself of his own many infirmities. In Philippians 2, he mentions that Epaphroditus was sick almost unto death, right? And in 1 Timothy 5, Paul tells Timothy what? Oh, well, wait until I come and I'll lay hands on you and heal you. No, he says... Take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Right? It was a gift given for the specific purpose of authenticating the message of the apostles. That was the purpose of this gift of healing. It was what we call a sign gift. Uh, When the apostles would preach the gospel, God would sometimes grant them the ability to perform these miraculous healings so that their listeners would know that they were sent from God. Think about it like this. If, if you are a Gentile and you've never heard the gospel and you, you find some apostle coming up preaching to you about salvation in the death, burial, and resurrection of a Savior, you're going to think, why in the world should I believe you? But if you then witness that apostle healing a lame man instantaneously and saying, Stand up, take up your bed, and walk. You're going to think, maybe I should listen to this guy. This is someone who is sent from God. It was a miraculous ability to perform healings so that their listeners would know that they were sent from God. But like all the sign gifts, they were temporary and they were infrequent. And listen, we have no need for sign gifts today. Why? Because we have complete copies of the Scriptures. We have complete copies of the scriptures. And Jesus said, what did he say there in the parable in Luke 16? If someone won't believe him and his word, they won't believe even if a miracle was performed before them. This is in stark contradiction to the so-called faith healers of our day who, who claim to be able to heal all the time. And what is so sickening about their teachings is that When someone comes to them with sickness or disease and they aren't healed, the faith healer will then say, well, that's because you didn't have enough faith. The gift of healings in the Bible was never dependent upon the faith of the one who was sick, but on the power of God who gave the gift. Again, this is another example of the horrendous soul-destroying effects of the worst of that movement. How come you never see a faith healer down at the children's ward of a hospital? How come you always see them up on a stage taking up an offering, building up their own platform and ministry? Well, it's because they are frauds. Now, on the other hand, listen very carefully. Do I believe God heals today? Oh, absolutely. Do I believe that God still gives healing in the church? Oh, absolutely I do. Uh, do I believe that God can, can heal in extraordinary ways that cannot be explained by modern medicine? 
Do I believe that, that a cancer patient could, could, could have a terminal diagnosis, but, but they, they come to church and they pray and the elders lay hands and they anoint them with oil and God blesses faithfulness and demonstrates His power and heals in ways that we would deem miraculous? Absolutely. Of course I believe that. I've seen that. Yes, there are healings in the church today, but there are no healers in the church today. The only healer is God. And really the same explanation can be given to miracles. The, the, the uh, exercising of healings or miracles are, are no longer to authenticate the Word, but they are a demonstration of the, of the power of God and the grace of God. We believe that God can and does perform mighty wonders. We, we believe that. But that's altogether different than saying that the apostolic gift of miracles is still at work in the church today for the same reason. Continuing on, we see Paul mentions prophecy and discerning of spirits. Prophecy and discerning of spirits. Well, the question of whether or not the gift of discerning spirits still operates in the church today is entirely dependent on the definition of prophecy. Why? Because the gift of discerning spirits was the gift to supernaturally know for sure if someone claiming to be a prophet is a true or false prophet. And it applies to prophecy, not necessarily to preaching, right? Uh, Because you don't know for sure, uh, apart from examining the Word, you don't know for sure if a preacher is preaching truth or not. You have to examine it according to the Word. But the, the gift of discernment of spirit was the ability to somebody gets up and they start prophesying, and you're able to know infallibly that's a prophecy from God. So the real question is, what's the gift of prophecy? If we define that gift, we will define the gift of discernment. And when it comes to the gift of prophecy, there's two prominent answers. Okay? There's, there's the more strict and narrow view of prophecy that identify this gift only as the ability to communicate new divine revelation received directly from God. This is what the prophets of the Old Testament did when they would declare, thus saith the Lord. They were prophesying. It's not just forthtelling, it's foretelling. Sometimes it's predictive, but sometimes it's just communicative of new information. This is also what the apostles of the New Testament did when they wrote Scripture. This is recorded prophecy. As we've already established, uh, the Bible clearly teaches that the totality of divine revelation has been given. So by this definition, this strict definition, the gift of prophecy no longer operates today as it did. You say, when did it cease? Well, when John penned the last word of the New Testament. However, there is another definition of prophecy. And it's compatible with the first definition. And it doesn't involve the communication of new revelation, but simply the pointed proclamation and application of revelation that has already been given. And this is not a definition that originated with the charismatic movement. In 1592, the Puritan William Perkins wrote a book on the basics of expository preaching. And what did he name his book? He named it, the art of prophesying. Perkins was not a charismatic. Perkins did not believe that God was giving him new revelation. But he did believe that God grants a spiritual gift to ministers of the word that enables them to proclaim the word with such authority, power, unction, and pointed deliverance that there is a sense in which the preaching is prophetic. It's the way we use that terminology when someone says something really profound. What do we say sometimes? Wow, that sounds prophetic. We don't mean he's predicting the future or that he's giving new information directly from God, but that he said something that was, that was very pointed. Have you ever heard a sermon and it was as if the preacher was preaching right at you? You're thinking, this guy must be reading my mail. I mean, he, how does he know everything about me? Well, those in the Perkins vein of thought would call that prophecy. Call that prophecy. 
I've been able to experience in my own ministry where I'm preaching. A lot of times it's just expositionally through a book. It wasn't even that I felt a special sense to, to go to a different portion of Scripture. It was notes that I had prepared the previous week, but something had occurred in the lives of someone in the congregation, and I said something in a sermon that, that touched on something very specific that they happened to be going through, and they come up to me afterwards and they say, did you hear what happened to me this past week? And I'll say, no, I had, I had no idea. Well, I believe that's just a sweet gift of God using uh, the Word of God and the ordinary ministry of the Word to bless His people. Now, whether or not those things happen is not really up for debate. We know those things happen. If you want to call them prophecy, go right ahead. If you don't want to call them prophecy, don't call them prophecy. I don't, I don't want to get in a fight over semantics and definitions with you. Perkins was not afraid to call it prophecy. And Perkins was not saying that anything he ever preached should be written down and put in the back of his Bible. But he did believe that the Spirit ministers in the Word. And, you know, I pray every time I stand here that it's not just me up here speaking to you. But I pray that the Holy Spirit would take the Word and use me as a vessel to communicate His truth to your heart. As Paul progresses in chapters 13 and 14, he talks about a gift of prophecy that passes away. He talks about that. And he tells us that the apostles and the prophets were foundational to the church. When you build a building, how many times do you lay the foundation? One time. right? So I I think it would be wrong for us to, to believe that there is in the church today the office of apostle and prophet. But does God still give preaching gifts? Does he still anoint preaching with the power of the Spirit uh, to, to, to have a powerful impact and application in the lives of his people? It's my prayer that he does. It's my prayer that he does. And then lastly, there are diverse kinds of tongues and the interpretation of tongues. Uh, this is the last pair of gifts that Paul mentions, and though it is the most controversial, Ironically, it's the easiest to define. Why is it the easiest to define? Well, because we see very clear examples of it in the New Testament. So I'd ask you to hold your place in 1 Corinthians and turn back with me to Acts chapter number 2. Acts chapter number 2. Again, tongues was the gift that the Corinthians were most obsessed with. And why were they most obsessed with it? For the same reason that modern charismatics are most obsessed with it, because it's flashy and it's ostentatious. It's very showy. But what is the gift of tongues? What is it? The gift of tongues is the ability to prophesy in an intelligible language that you do not know. And the gift of interpretation of tongues is the ability to understand a prophecy in an intelligible language that you do not know. For instance, if someone in the church who did not know French stood up and began to prophesy in French, and then someone else in the church who also didn't know French stood up and then began to say, here's what our brother just said in French. That's the gift of tongues. That's what the gift of tongues was in the New Testament. And God gave this gift for the same reason he gave miracles, to authenticate the message. So let me prove this definition to you from Acts chapter 2. I want to show you two things. Number one, first I want you to to see that tongues is a form of prophecy. Look at Acts 2 and look at verse 4. Notice it says, They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So it's the Spirit that is leading in the gift of tongues. It is a form of prophecy. But secondly, and this is the most controversial point to this definition, tongues is a known language. Look at verse 5. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. 
And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and in Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya around Cyrene, strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. They didn't hear them speak in some unintelligible gibberish. They heard them speak in their own tongues. The gift of tongues is really the gift of languages. The, the usage of the word tongues is a literary device called a metonymy. What is a metonymy? It is the substitution of the name of something for the thing itself. For instance, if I were to say, the British Crown released a statement this past week. Well, you know that crowns don't speak in release statements. I'm referring not to the crown, but to the monarch that's symbolized by the crown. Well, we use our tongues to speak. You can't speak a language without the body part of the tongue. So Scripture calls it the gift of tongues, but it's really the gift of languages. So let me ask you this. Modern day proponents of the gift of tongues, or what they call the gift of tongues, who claim to have it. Is this how they practice the gift of tongues in their churches? Not at all. They, they babble, oftentimes at the same time, and no one ever tries to interpret. And by the way, in chapter 14, Paul will give directions to the Corinthian church on how they are to practice the gift of tongues. And what does he say? It can only be one or two people, and, and it must be one at a time. You can't have two people getting up and going... Imagine if we had three or four preachers trying to preach at the same time. And there must be an interpreter. And if there's an unbeliever present, you can't do it. Why not? Because an unbeliever walks in and hears that, and they're thinking, what in the world's going on here? They don't understand anything. Paul says it's better to have one word of prophecy in a known tongue than a bunch of words in an unknown tongue. But those who claim to speak in tongues today completely regard Paul's instructions. Why? Because they're not actually practicing the biblical gift of tongues. Just like the gift of healings and the gift of miracles, tongues serve the unique purpose of authenticating the message of God, which is an authentication we no longer need. We have the Word of God. And we have the Spirit today testifying to the Word of God. It's also important to note 1 Corinthians was an earlier epistle of Paul. He wrote this towards the beginning of his ministry. But in his later epistles, his pastoral epistles, which would have been written 20, 25 years later, he still talks about the gift of teaching, but he gives no instruction on the gift of tongues. And I believe that signifies to us that it was a gift that was passing away. You say, well, but what about the missionary? on the foreign field who preaches the gospel and some indigenous tribe that doesn't know English somehow understands him and he's able to, to have communication with them. Do, do, don't you believe in that? <laughs> well, again, I'll tell you what I've already told you. I believe that God can and does do extraordinary and unexplainable things, especially on the mission field. But that scenario is not the gift of tongues. It's just not what the gift of tongues is. And I believe it's important that we define the gift of tongues so that if anyone ever comes to you and says that you don't have the Holy Spirit or that you aren't as spiritual or that you don't have spiritual gifts unless you speak in tongues, you can say, I don't believe that for a second. Because what you're saying is the gift of tongues is not what the Bible says is the gift of tongues. Well, This is the list that Paul gives, and I hope that you see that I've tried to give balanced and biblical explanations to each one of these gifts. So let us close now with a final point. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 11, and briefly let me show you verse 11. I want you to see their sovereignty in dispensation. Notice he says, But all these worketh that one in the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally, as he will. 
as Paul has emphasized before, so he concludes here, spiritual gifts cannot be used to divide the body or elevate one member over another because they all come from the same Holy Spirit for the mutual good of the entire body. And Paul doesn't want us sitting around going, what gift do you have? What gift do you have? You know, I, 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 think, I think Alan's a prophet and I think Philip's a healer. No, he wants us to just faithfully serve wherever God is pleased to give us opportunity to do so. He says that the Holy Spirit divides to every man as he will. By the way, it's a phenomenal verse for the personality of the Holy Spirit. He has a will. He makes decisions. And he uses his will to bless the body of Christ. Well, let me conclude by encouraging you. Be thankful for your complete and preserved copy of God's Word that sits in your lap. You hold in your hand a more sure word of prophecy. This is better than the gift of prophecy as it was in the Old Testament. This is better than the gift of tongues. Uh, This is better than a word that fades away. It is the living, abiding word of God that will never fade away. And be thankful for the spiritual gift that God has given you. Serve Him in whatever way He puts in front of you. Listen, if, if God has called you to be the doorman, then you make that verse in the book of Psalms your life verse. It is better to be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in tents of wickedness. If God has called you to come to church 15 minutes early and take out the trash, then you do that faithfully every Lord's Day. And you serve the body. If God has called you to reach out to a brother and to encourage them, you do that. If God has called you to to be an intercessor, to be a prayer warrior, then you do that. If God's called you to take the Word of God and to preach, you do that. Stir up the gift that is in you and exercise it for His honor, for His glory. How do we glorify Christ? By serving His people. And how do we serve His people? By glorifying Christ before them. Let us use our spiritual gifts for these things. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for Your abundant goodness to us. I pray, Lord, that You've allowed me to be balanced and to be accurate and to be biblical in how we apply these things and how we define these things. Lord, I pray that by Your Spirit, You would give truth and veracity to the Word of God and that You would conform us to what is written. Lord, we love You, we praise You, and we thank You. We pursue spiritual gifts. We want them to be in our midst, to be operative in our church. Uh, We want to serve you with everything that you have given us. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.